Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is HTML, Husbands Talking Miracle Man and Labias. Oh my god. Oh. Oh no. You didn't warn me you were going to say that, much like you didn't warn me about the labias in this issue. Uh, this was a lot. This leg of Miracle Man. It was a lot. Well, it certainly wasn't ten fingers. Not start to finish. No. I actually think that this is one of the most fascinating bits of the Miracle Man canon. Today we're going to be talking about Miracle Man Book 2, The Red King Syndrome, which was reprinted in Marvel's Miracle Man 5 through 10. The actual issues within cover a range of stories, mostly originally published in the pages of Warrior, and later the Miracle Man republishing Miracle Man. These stories were predominantly written by the original writer, which not hard to figure out is of course Alan Moore, and the artist predominantly by Alan Davis, John Ridgway, and Chuck Austin. So this is really one of the most fascinating reads we could possibly have because I think this arc explains why we had to read so much shitty Gargunza because this explains why Gargunza was so stupid. Michelangelo should be like hugging Alan Moore every day for making his book retroactively more interesting. Yes and no. I think there are things about this that are well done. There are things that are kind of sloppy. I don't think that real world Gargunza is any smarter than fake Gargunza and I don't think that he gets enough attention. Frankly, I don't understand this character character well enough. He fluctuates between stupid and brilliant, between sympathetic and absolutely ghastly, and then is just dead. Very few people survive this arc about a superhero that can save everybody. This is a particularly complex narrative. Mickey is giving over more and more to being Miracle Man, and alongside his wife Liz, he tries to live some kind of normal life with his new buddy Mr. Cream. Yeah, that's one. And Liz is kidnapped. He, of course, assumes it's Johnny Bates, Kid Crazy Pants, but is none other than Dr. Emil Gargunza, the Gargunzinator. I'm still really mad that we never get an answer as to why Mr. Cream looks like Gargunza. He looks just like Gargunza from the original, right down to the fact that you can't see his eyes. That was frequently a way that Gargunza was drawn in the original. So I kept expecting there to be something there. I don't feel like I understand it at all who Mr. Cream was or his involvement in this story. I want to talk about the bigger narrative of how that actually plays into what this story is about. Alan Moore recently said that he wishes that more people had taken from Miracle Man what he had intended, as well as Watchmen, and not what they took. He'd hope that everybody would see the freedom that you have to take existing stories and do all sorts of new amazing things with them instead of people just doing takes of his iteration of classic stories in new ways over and over again. And he saw Miracle Man as a way to shift the paradigm of superheroes 
to super gods. And I don't know that in myth, there's always a reason everybody interacts with Zeus, but there's certainly always a reason Zeus interacts with everyone. I think if we take a look at Miracle Man as the story of this god on Earth, then everybody who is in his wake is somebody whose life was always meant to be touched by him, but he wasn't necessarily meant to be touched by them. They're kind of, like Gargunza, insignificant in the bigger picture of everything. Once Gargunza has his hand on Liz, he begins to explain that Liz's baby is gonna be his new body, and that this is all made out of aliens who had the sort of same space-occupying technology, and they made these guys, and one day in 1961, the illusion started to break and they all started to wake up. That is one of my favorite things in the world. I'll admit it's another thing that throws me a little bit. The fact that all of that was a dream. Like you created these guys and then just let them sit in a lab. But it was knowing that this was one of the first attempts to do a story like that. I do give it a lot of credit for the way that the writer pulled it off. One of the more unique elements of the Red King Syndrome narrative is the constant barrage of more and more ridiculous things as Mickey is trying to wake up. And I couldn't help but think about the number of ways it directly paralleled Captain Britain. No, it's not a werewolf. It's a vampire. No, it's not a vampire. It's a troll. No, it's not a troll. It's a goblin. No, it's not a goblin. It's a warlock. And I felt like those sort of hyper tropes of Arthurian bastardizations were the kinds of Anglo magic ideas, just one on top of another, that hyper pervaded the middle to end of Captain Britain. I get that. It makes it an interesting commentary on making that the character's quote-unquote real life then and questioning the believability and asking why a character like that wouldn't themselves question the believability, I guess, you know? And that's even what they're trying to say. Miracle Man's mind, no matter what the input, was so great that it had begun to work a way around being inside this perpetual dream state. And one of the things I loved about it was I felt like this connected directly to the opening sequence of the first Miracle Man issue by Marvel, which was a reprint of a later story, the bit where the team travels through time. That ultimately does become more important through the course of the narrative, but I really like that this story kind of clarified what that was about. I also really think it was an interesting choice the way that Gargunza quote-unquote defeated the Miracle Man family and ultimately subdued them. It was very reminiscent of the last page single action saves that you would see the Miracle Man family themselves pull out in classic Miracle Man stories. The way that he convinces them they woke up. Like, it's very clever, and it's almost too clever for its own good, but it, it makes sense a lot in the context of the situation that it would work. Especially because what he's trying to do is he's trying to keep Miracle Man's mind in this super heroic, constant myth form. The big form of myth back then were these classic adventure stories, the things they we're pulling on are these pirates and myth and trolls and magic and so many of those stories then end with oh and then he woke up on the hill oh what a weird dream we had but that moment where he realizes that not only has the costume transformed in real life but the costume has also transformed in the dream world it's that blurring of reality that I think should have been Gargunza's hint that he did not remotely understand what he was dealing with here I know that the idea was that he figured the only way to make himself an eternal body to become a Superman was to study Superman that you make and blah 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 but like I feel like he had to know at this moment that he would never be as great as the ideas inside of Miracle Man's mind. Well talk to me about your reactions to 
and your perception of the real world Gargunza because I'm not really sure what my take on him is. I feel like at times they're trying to make him seem sympathetic but like in three panels of his backstory they made him a near rape victim by an older man, made him rape that man's quote-unquote woman while the man watched as revenge and then beat the man to death with a baseball bat at the age of 14. That was a very intense moment of his backstory that I felt was bizarre to just throw in out of nowhere and it sort of never left me as I continued viewing the character throughout the arc. I have no pity for Gargunza. I have no love for Gargunza. My love for Gargunza is in that it is almost impossible to come up with a villain capable of standing up to Miracle Man and whether it's that Gargunza is truly brilliant enough or just sick enough and well connected whether it's through his machinations with the Nazis or Project Zathura Jumanji or Spook yeah. Show he is willing to do the grossness to get the ends he's looking for I think Gargunza's death where Miracle Man hurls him to the earth and he burns up to a crisp being nothing more than a shattered skull on the ground is too good for him that kiss was weird though right the kiss was weird Miracle Dog who no offense Alan Davis looks a lot like the werewolves from Excalibur but Miracle Dog had one of my favorite sequences Mickey goes to transform Kimoda but he gets Abraxist and so then he can't Kimoda which actually we had that seeded a bit in some of the older issues we read they talked about stealing the word yeah and I think that this really justified the inclusion of those issues for sure a hundred percent it's so fascinating because I do think that is why those issues were chosen garbage as many of them felt they did support this narrative almost as if maybe those were the issues that Alan Moore focused on when he was writing it so I liked that it was Miracle Man versus Miracle Dog and it gave way to Miracle Man being clever enough to realize that that he would have his own stop word because the dog can't speak so I mean although I don't know everything Miracle in this world can speak I have to correct you real quick not Miracle Man but Mickey was clever enough to realize that there must be some sort of word and I only want to emphasize that that's important because they keep talking about the difference between Mickey and Miracle Man and I not knowing where the story is going after this would love to see more exploration because they talk about how the Miracle Men are ubermensch clones of the originals so for as much as Mickey feels inferior to Miracle Man it's because Miracle Man is the best version of himself I guess but that means that Mickey is still in there I'm so glad that you pointed that out because that would have been a misspeak on my behalf that really does change the story when we talk about the differences between Brian Braddock and Captain Britain we're talking about the difference of about four inches and about 70 pounds of muscle we're not talking about a different guy he's no smarter as Captain Britain he's just bigger and more agile here Mickey is very clear that he is physically being replaced by an alternate being which is compounded by the fact that when he switches back to Miracle Man and then back to Mickey his fingers are still missing he's still bleeding and he goes right back into shock I couldn't remember in my reread how he defeated Gargunza. I felt like, oh, well, did the word just not work a second time or was he out of range? And then I remembered it's that he lightning fast grabbed Gargunza by the throat before he could speak. And that reminded me of one of the most important things about Miracle Man. One of the reasons I say that you need somebody as powerful as Miracle Man to be his villain is because once he knows how to take you down, you're just fucked. Every bit of Gargunza's plan requires 
inspired always being a step ahead of Miracle Man. Not necessarily being smarter, not necessarily being better, just a little bit ahead because the goal was take Miracle Man from Miracle Man. Exactly. He had prepared to have a cancel word and even knew that would only work for an hour or so and had not prepared for a contingency of now that Miracle Man knew there was a sabotage word, he would be able to react faster. Absolutely. We can keep dancing around it, and we can keep talking about death in this arc, but I guess at some point, we're gonna have to talk about that giant exploding vagina. Uh, it was certainly endless. Okay, endless. I like endless. It was a lot of pages. So, for those unfamiliar with what we are discussing, in Marvel's reprint of Miracle Man number 9, which contains Miracle Man number 9 from July of 1986, with pencils by Rick Veach and inks by Rick Bryant, we see Liz give birth to Winter in great painstaking detail. Winter is coming indeed. Winter is coming and it is something to watch. And it is everywhere and it is gross and it is awful. Childbirth is like a nightmare. I really applaud the artists on these issues for not shying away from how hideous newborns can be. A lot of people are very, oh, babies are so cute. And I even, you know, yeah, sure, babies are cute sometimes, but babies are also really ugly sometimes. It's a small, undeveloped, pruned person. It's not going to always be beautiful, and it certainly wasn't in these issues. No, not at all. But it's a really fascinating turning point because I feel like the first arc is all about shedding Mickey Moran. The second arc is all about shedding the skin that Mickey had to live in through these stories. The childbirthing scene is so important because we see this baby as hope, as innocence, as purity, and it comes out speaking and then it starts chewing on Miracle Man's finger like a minute later. And I feel that's super contrasted with all of the horrifying things that happened with Johnny in this issue. Okay, but actually that was the thing. I didn't know where chewing on the finger was going to go because again, it was Mickey's finger and I was like, is the baby gonna cut off one of his remaining fingers now? Everything was so horrific and everything has been so suspicious about the baby that I didn't know if it was going to take a turn like that and that's the thing about a series like this when you go those places you need to be a little bit more clear when you're not going to go a place like that. Especially because so much of the language throughout this book is such like graphic terrifying detail whether it's Miracle Man crushing the puppy's head with a rock or once he's detransformed Miracle Dog or it's describing Miracle Dog as running at him with an erection which was real choicey and oh i definitely missed that and um i'm glad so thank you for telling it to me secondhand because ew and there's so much like guys just standing around in their briefs in this does that seem like and it, I, I don't know is that like supposed to be transformative of the fact that that's essentially what they're standing in anyway is it meant to be as close to greco-roman superheroic godlike nudity is it meant to be like 
like the original Spartan Olympian people. I don't know. It felt unnecessarily homoerotic for a comic book that showed so much vagina. Maybe it was to balance things out. Speaking of balance, I don't know that I found the final issue of this arc necessarily part of this arc. I accept that they determined that Miracle Man number 10 should be part of the Red King Syndrome, whether it's because Alan Moore said so and whenever he speaks from the Grand Tower of Isengard, we all listen, or if it's because that's really the only place it can go. Our next arc, Olympus, which will represent the final stories by Alan Moore on the title, does not in any way connect to what we're already dealing with, but at the same time, I feel like there is something dramatic about how out of nowhere this issue feels. It to me feels very transitionary, so it's more like a tag for this arc than it is really a definitive closing chapter. I keep feeling like it's my ADD that's making me not understand the dialogue between the green and the purple people, but no, no, it's it's not me. It's not on me. I don't understand them, Nico, and did they turn into dinosaurs at the end of this issue? What? And I... Uh, uh... Like, don't get me wrong, I do, like, essentially get what they are, they're whatever the Miracle Men are, and they're hunting down the Miracle Men, and I think the Dr. McCarthy scene was really fun and interesting. I'm looking forward to potentially meeting these other Miracle people, and you know I always love weird robotic dialogue. Please to excuse me, will female Dr. Lear be expecting our sickness now is awesome. I do want to start asking the medical receptionists and technicians at my doctor's office. Will the doctor be seeing my illness now? And the part where the reception is like, what? Kim who? Speaking of illness and medical professionals, the incredibly traumatic story of Johnny Bates just gets more and more traumatic. Kid Miracle Man has it like the hardest. Poor Kid Miracle Kid. He does. He seems to have gained some sort of upper hand in our most recent visit to his story, but the look on your face is making me worry about that. Well, because I don't know that it necessarily reads like he's actually gotten the upper hand. In the last moments of his story, he believes he's gotten the upper hand, but his adult young Miracle Man self snickers mercilessly in the corners saying, what have you done with glee on his face and a sense of evil whimsy that just makes my stomach turn every time I see it. I guess I'll find out what that means eventually. I promise you don't have to wait too long as next episode we'll see the resolution of all of these stories. However, I'm a little disappointed because I feel very much like there's a number of parallels between who Johnny has become in the form of Kid Miracle Man and who Young Nasty Man was, and I feel like we don't see the connection enough. As a matter of fact, I almost now see Nasty Man, who I've decided is the old hermit Nasty Man, the magical Nasty Man hermit, who's like, here, drink this potion, kid, now you can be a bully. Yeah. Me. I kind of like to pretend he's Gargunza in my head now. Okay, sure. And then Young Gargunza is is a failed attempt at Gargunza to make a new body. Okay. And it all plays out into that bigger narrative, but man, Johnny breaks my heart because he truly believes that he has a chance to be with other kids now. And even when he believes he has a chance to be with other kids, they still show drool running down his face. Yeah. 
It's just not a good time to be a miracle baby. Speaking of the chemical thing, did you notice when that random kid that runs into Miracle Man who calls him a poof asks if he has any chemicals that he can drink to become a sidekick? I thought that that was a very interesting wink at that sort of behavior from the original Miracle Man stories. And I think that's a really great commentary on the 1980s European nuclear fallout fears that was still in a very, you know, winds of change, the scorpions, hydro kids in a bunker kind of era. So I think it's actually really interesting that this guy's like, can you radiate me? I also like that the kid is like, I'm sorry for calling you a poof. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is at the time that was maybe actually seen as an act of putting down a bully. It's not that he showed the kid it was wrong to call people gay as an insult. It's that he said, I'm stronger than you. Don't you call me gay? And that is the sort of morality play that this is not quite getting right. Miracle Man didn't teach this kid a lesson for doing something awful. He gave this kid a free show and said, don't ever insult me again. It's not quite what we're thinking of or looking for when we're thinking about these characters. There's a hollowness that rings true to these these tales. And I don't necessarily think that this story is meant to be a morality play, but rather is a reflection of the sort of morality plays that you would see portrayed in the original Miracle Man stories, where we were frequently scratching our heads being like, but you didn't actually teach any lesson here. You're all just kind of terrible fucking people. What? 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 Now, speaking of terrible fucking people, my favorite Miracle character is definitely Dicky, and I don't know if it's just because he's like the cute one, you know what I mean? But like, there's a young Miracle Man story in Miracle Man number five that is just weird as hell. Yeah, especially now that we know that all of those Miracle Man adventures were just dreams. What was the point of even showing that? Like, I thought it was cool for a second, but then I remembered, no, these are all dreams. So what, what even was the point? Perhaps, and hear me out, it was a wet dream. Follow me. In his daily course of life, he finds himself attracted to a woman and attempts to show off for her. He submerges, there is a chase, it intensifies, and it ultimately results in an all-wet explosion that yields nothing. And is disappointing and only yields him shame. Okay, sure. So it's just a random wet dream in the middle of this eight-year coma. I think so. And they made us read that. Hey everybody, Nico here with a different kind of recommendation. Well, normally this show sticks to the superheroic elements of comic books. Every now and then, it's important to take a look outside of those funny pages and to some pages that explore some different ideas. And I couldn't think of a better segment to do it in than one about a book by Alan Moore. Alan Moore recently discussed how he feels superhero films are a little bit embarrassing and not a little bit worrying because they, in so many ways, can be sourced back to Birth of a Nation. And for all of the great things Uncle Alan has given us, every now and then he says something a little bit off the wall, but I do think there is some value to taking a look at some comic book stories that aren't superhero related. For that matter, it's fascinating that even a guy like Alan Moore, who is so well known for his non-superhero work, constantly finds himself in the crosshairs of superhero work, whether it's the repeated adaptations of Watchmen, or it's his adaptation of V for Vendetta, which did somehow turn that into a superhero film. Not sure how that happened, but it did. There are all sorts of comics out there that have nothing to do with capes and heroes, whether it's Strangers in Paradise by Terry Moore or The Incredible Love and Rockets, which has run for a zillion years. There are so many different comic books out there that we can take a look at. And when I think about all-time greatest comic books that change the medium, change me as a fan, and truly one of the most celebrated, successful comics in the history of Europe details the powerful rise of a brilliant billionaire industrialist, how he fought to get himself out of poverty and out of nothing. Actually, crazy enough, Finnish composer, 
composer Tomas Holopin released a concept album based on the book, which is just bizarre. It's been reprinted a hundred times, and it's such a staggering work that it features all sorts of incredible historical figures, whether it's John Jacob Astor, Phineas Taylor Barnum, Roy Bean, Buffalo Bill, the Dalton Gang, Marcus Daly, Wyatt Earp, Geronimo, Frank James, Jesse James, Jack London, Murdo McKenzie, who was a cattle baron, for those who didn't know, Macbeth the King of Scotland, Bat Masterson, Nicholas II of Russia, Annie Oakley, Robert Peary, Theodore Roosevelt, John Philip Sousa, and Royal Canadian Mounted Police Colonel Sam Steele. We're talking about a pretty phenomenal work that takes a look at the historical value of, essentially, white expanse through culture. Our adventures find our hero traversing all over the world, interacting with cultures he'd never seen before, and making his mark on them in an attempt to make his mark on the world. It talks about the importance and the duality of family, and how sometimes you have to betray people to make your dreams come true, and then what's the true dream? Achieving what you'd wanted, or having the true gold you never saw coming? The book does venture into magic, with several elements based on superstition, and some hard-to-believe moments, but, you know, when I think about this work, I think about the fact that it's been adapted into multiple TV shows, one of which ran like a hundred episodes, and you know, it's just, it's so ubiquitous, and especially, I'm recording this right around Thanksgiving, so the holidays are on my mind. I guess I just can't suggest any better a fictional non-superhero comic book work to take a look at than the recently released two volumes of The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. I super duper recommend checking them out, and for sure the digital editions that just came out are great. Don Rosa did a beautiful job, the Carl Bark stories are unforgettable, and Scrooge McDuck is probably the most successful, well-liked, popular character in Europe in all of comic books. So, Batman, Superman, Wolverine, Cap, Iron Man, guys, none of you hold a candle to Scrooge McDuck or Donald's sales out in Europe. So, if you guys want to try something you've probably never tried before, I could not recommend The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck with more gusto or more energy. It is a truly spectacular edition, and the two volumes that were recently put out, again, blow me away. Next time, maybe I'll tell you guys all about the Duck Knight Returns in the Darkwing Duck comic. You know, we read The Wet Dream, and then we got to read The Vulva Explosion, and, you know, it's... It's been a lot, and I am terrified to find out what is coming next. Well, we only have two more episodes of The Miracle of Marvel Man to go. We're going to be examining issues 11 through 16, plus the newly added annual, which represents book three, Olympus. From there, we're going to be taking a look at Neil Gaiman's first act of his multi-part saga, The Golden Age, which tragically does not have its sequel the silver age which we have been waiting on for quite some time it's been solicited and unsolicited a number of times two of the issues do exist out there they are known as miracle man number 23 and 24 they saw print from eclipse comics a number of years ago but the label folded all of the rights issues and those two issues are ready to be reprinted in the u.s and we do believe that the third issue is done so we're going to be in a really interesting position where in some form or another. While we are past the halfway point, the Miracle Man narrative is just sort of dangling in this magical netherworld, and the character is popping up in the pages of Marvel 1000, which could mean he's popping up in the pages of Marvel Incoming, which is going to be December's big event. Funny enough, I just realized that now this is running after Incoming comes out on Christmas, so perhaps it already has. Perhaps this is an incredibly prescient episode that I'm going to go back and edit, or perhaps Miracle Man is going to do what he does best and sit on the scrap 
scrap heap of Marvel Comics's printing schedule. Kevo, we've now read an ungodly amount of classic Miracle Man. We've read 10 issues that comprise the first several years of his narrative as he returned to the spotlight. Where do you stand on Mickey Moran, Miracle Man, and his entire disaster miracle world? I'd say I like it a lot, but I know it's going to all come crashing down one way or another. It's sort of like saying that Anakin Skywalker seems really cool in episode two, and then episode three happens. So, I don't know. I'm certainly engaged and entertained, and that's sometimes the most you can ask for. And I do believe that you will at least be fulfilled by the conclusive ending that we reach through Alan Moore's run before we turn over to the very unconclusive Neil Gaiman run, but before we can do any of that, we need to go away. Kevo, until we next say Komoda, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, as well as on the Facebook page for our program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. That is also the handle for our joint Instagram and Tumblr, but not Twitter, because there's a character limit. So that one is at Real Nico Kevo Ack, A-C-K. You can also find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that we tell over at KidRiotComics.com with the rest of our team from the Demon Hotel. Nico, where can the folks find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network here on shows like... Oh, wait, you already said that one. No, I said the Facebook page. You can talk about the show. Go oh, awesome. So you guys can find me all over HTML, the show that we do together, where we talk about different movie franchises. We've covered the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've taken a look at the Fox Marvelverse, toured around the Alien and Predator franchises, and now we are thoroughly ensconced in the Force, checking things out in Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars. Don't forget to check out the other amazing feeds on this show, like 80s Mutant Mania, where we talk about the heyday of Claremont's 80s comics over in the X-verse or we are Krakoa where we examine Jonathan Hickman's revolutionary Dawn of X check me out on Instagram at NicoAction N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and don't forget to like and subscribe all over your favorite ways to listen to podcasts alright guys and until we return we'll see ya Abraxas <laughs> <laughs>